Almost my entire life, I've been told that procrastination is a bad thing. You need it's something you got to weed out and stop procrastinating. Do it right now. Figure it out. Get it done. Move on to the next thing. But here's the problem with that. I, over the years, have collected a ton of stories that I've been trying to make sense of and try to find if there's a through line between them. And what they are, are they are, they're stories of artists or people who have made things that have impacted me, whether it's a, a musical album or a stand-up special or a movie or something, something that I feel like, man, where did this come from? This is totally original. I've never seen anything like it before. And as I've dove into that over the years, I found a bunch of stories of people who seem to have this intimate relationship with procrastination to the point where it feels like you're freaking embracing it. This week, Sarah and I were watching a documentary on Netflix called The Greatest Night in Pop. I think like Lionel Richie kind of headed the whole thing up, but it was all the pop, these pop stars coming together to record in the same room that song, We Are the World, that was like a humanitarian relief with what was happening in Africa at the time. Now, obviously, the, the focus of the documentary was all these mega pop stars coming together in this one night recording in the studio, all in one room together. But what was fascinating for me, actually, was that they needed a song for it. So Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson got together. Uh, they, I think they had like a month's notice to write this anthemic song for everybody to sing. And I'm like, so naturally... For me, I'm, uh, originally, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're just these two crazy hit songwriters are getting together to write a song. No big deal. But then I realized as I'm watching this, oh, these are just two dudes writing a song together, super nervous because there's a ton of pressure. Like all their peers and people that they respect are going to be singing this and judging this song or having opinions about it. So there's like a actually a ton of pressure on the two of them. And what it goes into is Lionel Richie was talking about how they just, they had so much pressure on them that they just, they kept kind of putting it off. They got together to write these songs, making stuff, like meeting up. They were actually, they were getting together to write. They weren't putting off getting together and thinking about the project. But Lina was talking about how they'd get together and, you know, Michael Jackson would run off and do a couple other things. It felt like, okay, they weren't like, time wasn't of the essence. They're just kind of playing around with it a little bit. And then all of a sudden, a week before the recording, they still didn't have a song. And Quincy Jones calls him up and like, what are you guys doing? We have to send out a demo for all these artists to learn the song. You have like two nights to record it. So then all of a sudden, it was the end, like that final moment. They got together and they crunched through it and they wrote that song came out of it. I have a, so many stories like this of things, whether it's a script or a song, whatever it is, not fully being finalized and decided upon until the last minute. So in my mind, I'm like thinking about, okay, there's got to be something here. This relationship to procrastination seems to be different. And all of a sudden, I, re I remembered this week that I had read a book written by John Cleese called Creativity. And it's a really freaking short book and it's an easy read and it's one of the most brilliant things I've ever, I've ever read. I highly recommend it to anybody that's curious about this stuff, about the creative process. But in it, he talks about uh, procrastination being actually less of being indecisive about something, but more having a different relationship with creativity and time. He actually did a talk a few years back on all of this, and this is what he said. Uh, 
Let me tell you a story. I was always intrigued that one of my Monty Python colleagues, who seemed to be, to me, more talented than I was, did never produce scripts as original as mine. And I watched for some time, and then I began to see why. If he was faced with a problem, and fairly soon saw a solution, he was inclined to take it, even though, I think, he knew the solution was not very original. Whereas if I was in the same situation, although I was sorely tempted to take the easy way out and finish by five o'clock, I just couldn't. I'd sit there with the problem for another hour and a quarter, and by sticking at it, would, in the end, almost always come up with something more original. It was that simple. My work was more creative than his simply because I was prepared to stick with the problem longer. So imagine my excitement when I found that this was exactly what McKinnon found in his research. He discovered that the most creative professionals always played with the problem for much longer before they tried to resolve it because they were prepared to tolerate that slight discomfort and anxiety that we all experience when we haven't solved a problem. You know what I mean? If we have a problem and we, we need to solve it, until we do, we feel inside us a kind of internal agitation, a tension or uncertainty that makes us just plain uncomfortable. And we want to get rid of that discomfort. So in order to do so, we take a decision. Not because we're sure it's the best decision, but because taking it will make us feel better. Well, the most creative people have learned to tolerate that discomfort for much longer. And so, just because they put in more pondering time, their solutions are more creative. Now, the people I find it hardest to be creative with are people who need all the time to project an image of themselves as decisive. And who feel that to create this image, they need to decide everything very quickly and with a great show of confidence. Well, this behavior, I suggest sincerely, is the most effective way of strangling creativity at birth. But please note, I'm not arguing against real decisiveness. I'm 100% in favor of taking a decision when it has to be taken and then sticking to it while it's being implemented. What I'm suggesting to you is that before you take a decision, you should always ask yourself the question, when does this decision have to be taken? And having answered that, you defer the decision until then in order to give yourself maximum pondering time which will lead you to the most creative solution. And if, while you're pondering, somebody accuses you of indecision, say, look, baby cakes, I don't have to decide till Tuesday, and I'm not chickening out of my creative discomfort by taking a snap decision before then. That's too easy. So, to summarize, the third factor that facilitates creativity is time giving your mind as long as possible to come up with something original. Man, I love that. And I realize I've had firsthand uh, experience with this thought, with me even doing the Daily Guinness episodes. 
this year. The one now that I'm thinking about it, uh, every day's episode comes about in one of four different ways. And it all has to do with time. The first way is I just am super busy throughout the day. And I, it's just not even on my mind. I'm not even thinking about it until later afternoon, evenings coming along. I'm like, holy shit, I got to put a podcast out today. I got I to gotta figure something out to put out there. When I put that out there, it's fine. I share a thought, but it's not something that I'm like super like, like in my soul, my gut pumped where I feel like this is a really original thing that I'm putting out into the universe. That's fine. The other way sometimes it happens is I get up in the morning and I know I have a busy day. I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to record a podcast early this morning and put it out there. Kind of the same thing. That relationship, what ends up going out in the world uh, is kind of the same as the first style of doing it. Another way is that I am throughout my day, something happens, something sparks my curiosity, and it just hits me out of nowhere. I'm just inspired. The, the idea comes out of nowhere. I'm like, I have to record this right now. Typically, those are the ones where I'm uh, hijacking Sarah uh, with a podcast ambush. I'm like, oh, I got to tell someone about this. Let's record a podcast right now. Those just flow out of me. and so natural. And I feel like that is just an expression of where I'm at in life. And I, I, those, I feel like a little bit more original, but the most original podcast ideas that I have, the ones that I feel like I'm the most pumped about are the ones where I get up in the morning and I have an idea and I'm almost tempted to record the podcast right away and my thoughts on it. But I, I hold myself off a little bit. I know I've got some, a little bit of chunk of time in the afternoon or evening to record the thought and I just let it marinate with me. And every freaking time that happens, some kind of interact, like some, not interaction, some kind of inspiration hits me throughout the day. I'm like, oh, I would have never connected these two seemingly unconnected thoughts before. And it comes out to something I'm super pumped about and I think is original and I'm pumped to share it. And so I, I totally relate with this thing. But as I'm thinking about this today, I'm thinking about creativity. I'm thinking about procrastination. I'm thinking about my relationship with time and the creative process. I can't help but think, I wonder if life is similar to all of this. And I don't have this figured out. I just want to propose this question to you. What if, what if life and this question that we are handed when we're like in junior high is really similar to the creative process? And here's what I'm talking about. Went, around the time when we're all in junior high, we are all handed a creative problem that we are expected to solve or at least feel the pressure that we need to solve as quick as possible, except we're not told that it's a creative problem. We just are told it's a it's a decision that we all have to make, and the sooner you can make it, the better you are. And that question is, what do you want to do with your life? The natural thing, and I think kind of the way that John Cleese is talking about his talk, the natural thing is we're handed, well, here's the stepladder of life to... For to follow, first you go, you go to middle school, then you go to junior high, then you're in high school, then you go straight into college. You should find a spouse, get married, have kids, have your have this job, pick a career path. It's the people that are living a curious life, people that are living. In, what I don't what, what, what I want to say, I don't I don't want to say this is about this is not about having a quote real job, having a career. But I find it's the people who can put up with the discomfort and man, it's freaking mental discomfort to put off deciding what it is you're going to do with your life. The people that can press pause on that question, give themselves space and time. Those are the people 
that typically end up doing something really fascinating with their lives or end up at least being what I would consider a super curious and open person. Yeah, it's the people, I mean, man, how many conversations have I heard from like artists and musicians who have said, listen, if you, if you're going to reach a point in time in your, your trajectory, your creative journey, where you want to give up and get a quote, real job and just stop falling and that, that you have to pay the bills. So this isn't about like real job, but it's like, stop pursuing your artistry and what you are making in life and your own curiosities. It's really easy to give up on that and quit. And the only way that you for sure will not find success in your life is if you do quit. If you can, it's the people that have uh, put up with that almost life procrastination that seem to stumble on and not in the way, again, not in the way of where they're just flowing. They're not thinking about it, but, but like doing the deep, meaningful questioning of yourself that is what is within me that I'm curious about? What is within me that I want to put out in the universe? Yeah, it's those people that seem to do something really interesting with their life. I don't know. I think there's something there. I don't know. Am I crazy? Hit me up. Tell me if I'm on something or if you feel any different. Uh, okay, that's all I got. As always, I hope you're doing well. I'm going to put a link to all this stuff in the show notes below if you want to check it out. Uh, but Today is a Saturday that I'm recording this. I'm heading out. I got to prep some songs for a show tonight. Uh, But I hope wherever you're at, you are giving yourself grace with time and patience with this curious endeavor we call life. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. on. Before you go, Uh, I was just going to say the typical podcast thing. Hey, there's uh, the full recording. If you want to watch the video of John Cleese giving this talk, I think it's like 30 minutes or something like that. I'm going to put a link to to it uh, in the show notes below. And I was like, well, why, why don't I why, why give you something like three different clicks to click on? If you if you want to head out, you want to listen to the podcast episode, maybe you're doing the dishes right now, maybe you're on a road trip and you would like to listen to it. I'm going to put it right here. Uh, but it also, I'm going to put in the links to show notes and below so you can move on. You can do whatever you want. Uh, but here is that full conversation or lecture that John Cleese was giving on creativity. Uh, I think it's fascinating. A little context, this, I think the the talk was called Creativity and Management, which I love. I think his focus was giving it to people who typically wouldn't consider themselves creative people. And I love the argument against the thought that they are creative people and they're not creative people. So I'll leave it here. Hope you enjoy. You know, when uh, video arts asked me if I'd like to talk about creativity, I said, no problem, no problem. Because telling people how to be creative is easy. It's only being it that's difficult. And I knew it would be particularly easy for me because I spent the last 25 years watching how various creative people produce their stuff and being fascinated to see if I could figure out what makes folk, including me, more creative. What is more, a couple of years ago, I got very excited because a friend of mine who runs the psychology department at Sussex University, Brian Bates, showed me some research on creativity done at Berkeley in the 70s by a brilliant psychologist called Donald McKinnon, which seemed to confirm in the most impressively scientific way 
all the vague observations and intuitions that I'd had over the years. So the prospect of settling down to a quite serious study of creativity for the purpose of tonight's gossip was delightful. And having spent several weeks on it, I can state categorically that what I have to tell you tonight about what, how you can all become more creative is a complete waste of time. <laughs> so I think it would be much better if I just told jokes instead. <laughs> you know the light bulb jokes, you know? How many poles does it take to screw in a light bulb, one to hold the bulb, four to turn the table? Um, how many folk singers does it take to change a light bulb? Answer five, one to change the bulb, and four to sing about how much better the old one was. How many socialists does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, we're not going to change it, we think it works. <laughs> How many creative art... You see, the reason why it is futile for me to talk about creativity is that it simply cannot be explained. It's like Mozart's music or Van Gogh's painting or Saddam Hussein's propaganda. It is literally inexplicable. Freud, who analysed practically everything else, repeatedly denied that psychoanalysis could shed any light whatsoever on the mysteries of creativity. And Brian Bates wrote to me recently, most of the best research on creativity was done in the 60s and 70s with a quite dramatic drop-off in quantity after then, largely, I suspect, because researchers began to feel that they had reached the limits of what science could discover about it. In fact, the only thing from the research that I could tell you about how to be creative is the sort of childhood that you should have had, which is of limited help to you at this point of your lives. <laughs> However, there is one negative thing that I can say, and it's negative because it's easier to say what creativity isn't. Uh, a bit like the sculptor who, when asked how he had sculpted a very fine elephant, explained that he'd taken a big block of marble and then knocked away all the bits that didn't look like an elephant. <laughs> now, here's the negative thing. Creativity is not a talent. It is not a talent. It is a way of operating. So, how many actors does it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> Answer, thousands, only one to do it, but thousands to say, I could have done that. <laughs> How many Jewish mothers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Answer, don't mind me, I'll just sit here in the dark, nobody cares about me. <laughs> How many surgeons? You see, when I say a way of operating, what I mean is this. Creativity is not an ability that you either have or do not have. It is, for example, and this may surprise you, absolutely unrelated to IQ, provided you're intelligent above a certain minimal level, that is. But McKinnon showed in investigating scientists, architects, engineers, and writers that those regarded by their peers as most creative were in no way whatsoever different in IQ from their less creative colleagues. So in what way were they different? Well, McKinnon showed that the most creative had simply acquired a facility for getting themselves into a particular mood, a way of operating. 
which allowed their natural creativity to function. In fact, Kinnan, McKinnon described this particular facility as an ability to play. Indeed, he described the most creative when in this mood as being childlike, for they were able to play with ideas, to explore them, not for any immediate practical purpose, but just for enjoyment, play for its own sake. Now, about this mood, I'm working at the moment with Dr. Robin Skinner on a successor to our psychiatry book, Families and How to Survive Them. We're comparing the ways in which psychologically healthy families function, and then the ways in which such families function with the ways in which the most successful corporations and organizations function. And we become fascinated by the fact that we can usefully describe the way in which people function at work in terms of two modes, open and closed. So what I can just add now is that creativity is not possible in the closed mode. Okay? So how many American network TV executives does it take to screw in a light bulb? Answer, does it have to be a light bulb? <laughs> how many doorkeepers... Well, let me explain a little more. By the closed mode, I mean the mode that we are in most of the time when we're at work. We have inside us a feeling that there's lots to be done, and we have to get on with it if we're going to get through it all. It's an active, probably slightly anxious mode, although the anxiety can be exciting and pleasurable. It's a mode in which we're probably a little impatient, if only with ourselves. It has a little tension in it, not much humour. It's a mode in which we're very purposeful, and it's a mode in which we can get very stressed and even a bit manic, but not created. By contrast, the open mode is, is a relaxed, expansive, less purposeful mode, in which we're probably more contemplative, uh, more inclined to humour, which always accompanies a wider perspective, and consequently more playful. It's a mood in which curiosity for its own sake can operate because we're not under pressure to get a specific thing done quickly. We can play, and that is what allows our natural creativity to surface. Now, let me give you an example of what I mean. When Alexander Fleming had the thought that led to the discovery of penicillin, he must have been in the open mode. The previous day, he'd arranged a number of dishes so that culture would grow upon them. On the day in question, he glanced at the dishes and he discovered that on one of them, no culture had appeared. Now, if he'd been in the closed mode, he would have been so focused upon his need for dishes with cultures grown upon them, that when he saw that one dish was of no use to him for that purpose, he would quite simply have thrown it away. But thank goodness he was in the open mode, so he became curious about why the culture had not grown on this particular dish. And that curiosity, as the world knows, led him to the light bulb. I'm sorry, to, to, to penicillin. <laughs> now, in the closed mode, an uncultured dish is an irrelevance. In the open mode, it's a clue. Now, one more example. One of 
Alfred Hitchcock's regular co-writers, has described working with him on screenplays. He says, when we came up against a block and our discussions became very heated and intense, Hitchcock would suddenly stop and tell a story that had nothing to do with the work at hand. At first, I was almost outraged. And then I discovered that he did this intentionally. He mistrusted working under pressure. He would say, we're pressing, we're pressing. We're working too hard, relax, it will come. And, says the writer, of course, it finally always did. But let me make one thing quite clear. We need to be in the open mode when we're pondering a problem. But once we come up with a solution, we must then switch to the closed mode to implement it. Because once we've made a decision, we are efficient only if we go through with it decisively, undistracted by doubts about its correctness. For example, if you decide to leap a ravine, the moment just before takeoff is a bad time to start reviewing alternative strategies. <laughs> when you're attacking a machine gun post, you should not make a particular effort to see the funny side of what you're doing. <laughs> Humor is a natural concomitant of the open mode, but it's a luxury in the closed one. No, once we've taken a decision, we should narrow our focus while we're implementing it. And then after it's been carried out, we should once again switch back to the open mode to review the feedback arising from our action in order to decide whether the course that we have taken is successful or whether we should continue with the next stage of our plan. Whether we should create an alternative plan to correct any error we've perceived. And then, back into the closed mode again to implement that next stage, and so on. In other words, to be at our most efficient, we need to be able to switch backwards and forwards between the two modes. But here's the problem. We too often get stuck in the closed mode. Under the pressures which are all too familiar to us, we tend to maintain tunnel vision at times when we really need to step back and contemplate the wider view. This is particularly true, for example, of politicians. The main complaint about them from their non-political colleagues is that they become so addicted to the adrenaline that they get from reacting to events on an hour-by-hour -hour basis that they almost completely lose the desire or the ability to ponder problems in the open mode. So, as I say, creativity is not possible in the closed mode. And that's it. Well, 20 minutes to go, so how many women's livers does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, 37, one to screw it in, and 36 to make a documentary about it. <laughs> how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? The answer, only one, but the light bulb has really got to want to change. <laughs> oh, there is one just one other thing that I can say about creativity. There are certain conditions which do make it more likely that you'll get into the open mode and that something creative will occur. More likely. You can't guarantee anything will occur. You might sit around for hours, as I did last Tuesday, and nothing. Zilch. Bupkiss. Not a sausage. Nevertheless, I, I can at least tell you how to get yourselves into the open mode. You need five things. One, space. Two, time. 
Three, time. Four, confidence. And five, a 22-inch waist. <laughs> Sorry, my mind was wandering. I'm <laughs> getting into the open mode too quickly. Instead of a 22-inch waist, read humour. I do beg your pardon. OK, let's take space first. You can't become playful and therefore creative if you're under your usual pressures, because to cope with them, you've got to be in the closed mode, right? So you have to create some space for yourself away from those demands. And that means sealing yourself off. You must make a quiet space for yourself where you will be undisturbed. Next, time. It's not enough to create space. You have to create your space for a specific period of time. You have to know that your space will last until exactly, say, 3.30, and that at that moment your normal life will start again. And it's only by having a specific moment when your space starts and an equally specific moment when your space stops that you can seal yourself off from the everyday closed mode in which we all habitually operate. And I'd never realised how vital this was until I read a historical study of play by a Dutch historian called Johan Huizinger. And in it he says, play is distinct from ordinary life, both as to locality and duration. This is its main characteristic, its secludedness, its limitedness. Play begins and then at a certain moment it is over. Otherwise, it's not play. So, combining the first two factors, we create an oasis of quiet for ourselves by setting boundaries of space and of time. Now, creativity can happen. Because play is possible when we're separate from everyday life. So, you've arranged to take no calls, you've closed your door, you've sat down somewhere comfortable, you've taken a couple of deep breaths, and if you're anything like me, after you've pondered some problem that you want to turn into an opportunity for about 90 seconds, you find yourself thinking, oh, I forgot, I've, I've got to call Jim. Oh, and I must tell Tina that I need the report on Wednesday and not Thursday, which means I must move my lunch with Joe. And damn, I haven't called St Paul's about getting Joe's daughter an interview. And I must pop out this afternoon to get Will's birthday present. And those plants need watering. And none of my pencils are sharpened. And right, I've got too much to do. So I'm going to start by sorting out my paper clips. And then I shall make 27 phone calls. And I'll do some thinking tomorrow when I've got everything out of the way. Because, as we all know, it's easier to do trivial things that are urgent than it is to do important things that are not urgent, like thinking. And it's also easier to do little things we know we can do than to start on big things that we're not so sure about. So, when I say create an oasis of quiet, know that when you have, your mind will pretty soon start racing again but you're not going to take that very seriously. You just sit there for a bit, tolerating the racing and the slight anxiety that comes with that. And after a time, your mind will quieten down again. Now, 
Because it takes some time for your mind to quieten down, it's absolutely no use arranging a space-time oasis lasting 30 minutes, because just as you're getting quieter and getting into the open mode, you'll have to stop, and that is very deeply frustrating. So you must allow yourself a good chunk of time. I'd suggest about an hour and a half. Then after you've gotten to the open mode, you'll have about an hour left for something to happen, if you're lucky. But don't put a whole morning aside. My experience is that after about an hour and a half, you need a break. So it's far better to do an hour and a half now and then an hour and a half next Thursday and maybe an hour and a half week after that than to fix one four and a half hour session now. And there's another reason for that. And that's factor number three, time. Yes, I know we've just done time, but that was half of creating our oasis. Now I'm going to tell you about how to use the oasis that you've created. Why do you still need time? Well, let me tell you a story. I was always intrigued that one of my Monty Python colleagues, who seemed to be, to me, more talented than I was, did never produce scripts as original as mine. And I watched for some time, and then I began to see why. If he was faced with a problem, and fairly soon saw a solution, he was inclined to take it, even though, I think, he knew the solution was not very original. Whereas if I was in the same situation, although I was sorely tempted to take the easy way out and finish by five o'clock, I just couldn't. I'd sit there with the problem for another hour and a quarter, and by sticking at it, would, in the end, almost always come up with something more original. It was that simple. My work was more creative than his simply because I was prepared to stick with the problem longer. So imagine my excitement when I found that this was exactly what McKinnon found in his research. He discovered that the most creative professionals always played with the problem for much longer before they tried to resolve it because they were prepared to tolerate that slight discomfort and anxiety that we all experience when we haven't solved a problem. You know what I mean? If we have a problem and we, we need to solve it, until we do, we feel inside us a kind of internal agitation, a tension or uncertainty that makes us just plain uncomfortable. And we want to get rid of that discomfort. So in order to do so, we take a decision. Not because we're sure it's the best decision, but because taking it will make us feel better. Well, the most creative people have learned to tolerate that discomfort for much longer. And so, just because they put in more pondering time, their solutions are more creative. Now, the people I find it hardest to be creative with are people who need all the time to project an image of themselves as decisive. And who feel that to create this image, they need to decide everything very quickly and with a great show of confidence. Well, this behavior, I suggest sincerely, is the most effective way of strangling creativity at birth. But please note, I'm not arguing against real decisiveness. I'm 100% in favor of taking a decision when it has to be taken, 
and then sticking to it while it's being implemented. What I'm suggesting to you is that before you take a decision, you should always ask yourself the question, when does this decision have to be taken? And having answered that, you defer the decision until then in order to give yourself maximum pondering time, which will lead you to the most creative solution. And if while you're pondering, somebody accuses you of indecision, say, look, baby cakes, I don't have to decide till Tuesday, and I'm not chickening out of my creative discomfort by taking a snap decision before then, that's too easy. So, to summarize, the third factor that facilitates creativity is time. Giving your mind as long as possible to come up with something original. Now, the next factor, number four, is confidence. When you're in your space-time oasis, getting into the open mode, nothing will stop you being creative so effectively as the fear of making a mistake. Now, if you think about play, you'll see why. True play is experiment. What happens if I do this? What would happen if we did that? What if? The very essence of playfulness is an openness to anything that may happen, a feeling that whatever happens, it's okay. So you cannot be playful if you're frightened that moving in some direction will be wrong, something you shouldn't have done. I mean, you're either free to play or you're not. As Alan Watts puts it, you can't be spontaneous within reason. So you've got to risk saying things that are silly and illogical and wrong. And the best way to get the confidence to do that is to know that while you're being creative, nothing is wrong. There's no such thing as a mistake and any drivel may lead to the breakthrough. And now, the last factor, the fifth, humour. Well, I happen to think the main evolutionary significance of humour is that it gets us from the closed mode to the open mode quicker than anything else. I think we all know that laughter brings relaxation and that humour makes us playful, yet how many times have important discussions been held where really original and creative ideas were desperately needed to solve important problems, but where humour was taboo because the subject being discussed was so serious. This attitude seems to me to stem from a very basic misunderstanding of the difference between serious and solemn. Now, I suggest to you that a, a group of us could be sitting around after dinner discussing matters that were extremely serious, like the education of our children or our marriages or the meaning of life, and I'm not talking about the film, and we could be laughing, and that would not make what we were discussing one bit less serious. Solemnity, on the other hand, I mean, I don't know what it's for. I mean, what is the point of it? The two most beautiful memorial services that I've ever attended both had a lot of humour and it somehow freed us all and made the services inspiring and cathartic. But solemnity, it serves pomposity 
And the self-important always know at some, some level of their consciousness that their egotism is going to be punctured by humour. That's why they see it as a threat. And so dishonestly pretend that their deficiency makes their views more substantial when it only makes them feel bigger. <laughs> no, humour is an essential part of spontaneity, an essential part of playfulness, an essential part of the creativity that we need to solve problems, no matter how serious they may be. So, when you set up a space-time oasis, giggle all you want. And there, ladies and gentlemen, are the five factors which you can arrange to make your lives more creative. Space, time, time, confidence, and Lord Geoffrey Archer. <laughs> so, now you know how to get into the open mode. The only other requirement is that you keep your mind gently round the subject you're pondering. Your daydream, of course, but you just keep bringing your mind back, just like with meditation. Because, and this is the extraordinary thing about creativity, if you just keep your mind resting against the subject in a friendly but persistent way, sooner or later you will get a reward from your unconscious. Probably in the shower later, or at breakfast the next morning, but suddenly you are rewarded. Out of the blue, a new thought mysteriously appears. If you've put in the pondering time first. So, how many Cecil Parkinson's does it take to change a light bulb? Answer two, one to screw it in, one to screw it up. How many... <laughs> how many account executives does it take to screw in a light bulb? Answer, can I get back to you on that? <laughs> how many Norwegian... Oh, sorry. How many Yugoslav... How many Malt... How many Dutch... I'm out of jokes. Oh, one thing. Looking at you all reminds me. I think it's easy to be creative if you've got other people to play with. I always find that if two or more of us throw ideas backwards and forwards, I get to more interesting and original places than I could ever have got to on my own. But there is a danger, a real danger, if there's one person around you who makes you feel defensive, you lose the confidence to play, and it's goodbye creativity. So always make sure your play friends are people that you like and trust. And never say anything to squash them either. Never say no or wrong or I don't like that. Always be positive and build on what's been said. Would it be even better if? I don't quite understand that. Can you just explain it again? Go on. What if? Let's pretend. Try to establish as free an atmosphere as possible. And you know, sometimes I wonder if the success of the Japanese isn't partly due to their instinctive understanding of how to use groups creatively. You know, Westerners are often amazed at the unstructured nature of Japanese meetings. But maybe it's just that very lack of structure, that absence of time pressure, that frees them to solve problems so creatively. And how clever of the Japanese sometimes to plan that unstructuredness by, for example, 
insisting that the first people to give their views are the most junior, so that they can speak freely without the possibility of contradicting what's already been said by somebody more important. Four minutes left. Ah, how many Irish... Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, look, the very last thing that I can say about creativity is this. It's like humour. In a joke, the laugh comes at a moment when you connect two different frameworks of reference in a new way. Example, there's the old story about... Um, a woman doing a survey into sexual attitudes who stops an airline pilot and asks him, amongst other things, when he last had sexual intercourse. He replies, 1958. Now, knowing airline pilots, the researcher is surprised and queries this. Well, says the pilot, it's only 2110 now. <laughs> we laugh, eventually. At the moment... The moment of contact between two frameworks of reference, the way we express what year it is in the 24-hour clock. Now, having an idea, a new idea, is exactly the same thing. It's connecting two hitherto separate ideas in a way that generates new meaning. Now, connecting different ideas isn't difficult. You can connect cheese with motorcycles or moral courage with light green or bananas with international cooperation. You can get any computer to make a billion random connections for you. But these new connections or, or juxtapositions are significant only if they generate new meaning, right? So as you play, you can deliberately try inventing these random juxtapositions and then use your intuition to tell you whether any of them seem to have significance for you. That's the bit the computer can't do. It can produce millions of new connections, but it can't tell which one of them smells interesting. And, of course, you'll produce some juxtapositions which are absolutely ridiculous. Absurd. Good for you. Because Edward de Bono, who invented the notion of lateral thinking, specifically suggests in his book uh, Poe, Beyond Yes and No, that you can try loosening up your assumptions by playing with deliberately crazy connections. He calls such absurd ideas intermediate impossibles. And he points out that the use of an intermediate impossible is completely contrary to ordinary logical thinking in which you have to be right at each stage. It doesn't matter if the intermediate impossible is right or absurd. It can nevertheless be used as a stepping stone to another idea that is right. Another example of how, when you're playing, nothing is wrong. So, to summarize, if you really don't know how to start, or if you've got stuck, start generating random connections and allow your intuition to tell you if one might lead somewhere interesting. Well, that really is all I can tell you that won't help you to be creative, everything. And now, in the two minutes left, I can come to the important part, and that is how to stop your subordinates becoming creative too, which is the real threat. <laughs> because believe me, no one appreciates better than I do what trouble creative people are, 
and how they stop decisive, hard-nosed bastards like us from running businesses efficiently. I mean, we all know, we encourage someone to be creative. The next thing is they're rocking the boat, coming up with ideas and asking us questions. Now, if we don't nip this kind of thing in the bud, we'll have to start justifying our decisions by reasoned argument and sharing information, the concealment of which gives us considerable advantages in our power struggles. So, here's how to stamp out creativity in the rest of the organization and get a bit of respect going. One, allow subordinates no humor. It threatens your self-importance, especially your omniscience. Treat all humor as frivolous or subversive. Because subversive is, of course, what humor will be in your setup, as it's the only way that people can express their opposition. Since if they express it openly, you're down on them like a ton of bricks. So let's get this clear. Blame humor for the resistance that your way of working creates. Then you don't have to blame your way of working. This is important. And I mean that solemnly. Your dignity is no laughing matter. Second, keeping ourselves feeling irreplaceable involves cutting everybody else down to size. So don't miss an opportunity to undermine your employee's confidence. A perfect opportunity comes when you're reviewing work that they've done. Use your authority to zero in immediately on all the things you can find wrong. Never, never balance the negatives with positives. Only criticize, just as your school teachers did. Always remember, praise makes people uppity. Third, demand that people should always be actively doing things. If you catch anybody pondering, accuse them of laziness and or indecision. This is to starve employees of thinking time because that leads to creativity and insurrection. So, demand urgency at all time, use lots of fighting talk and war analogies, and establish a permanent atmosphere of stress of breathless anxiety and crises. In a phrase, keep that mode closed. Now, in this way, we no-nonsense types can be sure that the tiny, tiny, microscopic quantity of creativity in our organization will all be ours. But let your vigilance slip for one moment and you could find yourself surrounded by happy, enthusiastic and creative people whom you might never be able completely to control ever again. So be careful. Thank you and good night. Rob Morgan is an internationally touring bassist on a journey to discover what it means to live a curious life. At thecuriouspod.com, you'll find an archive of conversations reported all over the world, a map of recording locations, a weekly newsletter, and official podcast merchandise. Rob is recording a daily podcast where he's sharing insights into the creative journey and the secrets to living a curious life that he's discovered from over a decade of traveling the world with music. We here at Curious Endeavors have told him this is probably a mistake and he's an idiot to attempt it but he won't budge, so that's where we're currently at. We hope you'll enjoy.